Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody. It's Kevin, and thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, episode 299, <laughs> and following uh, with episode 300, as it were, usually. <laughs> anyway, today's episode is a little bit different than everything else that I've done. Now, we talk about good technology and the beautiful things that we can do with technology to help people in a planet, and that's all good. But once in a while, we have to dip a toe into analyzing some ancient claims. What did people say? How can we hold them accountable years later? You know, they've made a lot of claims for personal agenda and even for profit. And they got away with it. But they still continue to do it, now causing more problems for technology, whether it's genetic engineering or COVID vaccines. And it's time for us to start talking about these folks a little bit more frequently and shining a little sunshine on them. Now, when we do that, we're going to ruffle some feathers. And so if you get angry, send me an email, kevinfold at gmail.com. Reach out on social media. I'd be glad to talk to you. Do not send hate mail to the university that I work for. This is not a university-sanctioned podcast. It has nothing to do with the university. It's done on my personal time, personal equipment, and I pay for it. Again, it, it, it's like if I made ships and bottles or had a kid at a t-ball game. It's got nothing to do with the university. So, send your nasty grams to me. I'd be delighted to read them. Um, reach out. But most of all, enjoy the podcast. It's important in these days of busting disinformation to remind you of the disinformation we've had to deal with in the past, as well as, though, those who propagate it and those who profit from it. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. Episode 299, which means there's one more before the big 300. And we wanted to kind of go back in time a touch. Today, I wanted to do something that has needed to be done for a long time. So back in the early days of really what, what became vigorous discussion about biotechnology on the internet. There were a number of characters who made claims, really intense claims, sometimes involving government offices and, and officials, uh, others who polluted the, the literature with false information, others who maybe even continued to do it till this day. The problem is twofold. One is that that information still stands out there on the web, has not been corrected, and in the age of disinformation today, maybe it's good for us to look at it critically in reverse. The other thing is, is that the people who are doing this have never been held accountable for their misinformation. And if anything, maintain a patina of credibility that they use to continue to spread false information about a good technology. 
So today we're going to talk to Rob Wager, and Rob is a faculty member, or was a faculty member <laughs> for 26 years at Vancouver Island University in beautiful Niamo, uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. So welcome to the podcast, Rob. Ah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. The last one was a really good episode that got a lot of downloads, and this one should be equally interesting. So today we want to t revisit um, Dr. Don Huber, and he's somebody who I have significant history with. Um, we'll talk all about that. But um, he, my first real connection with him as, a, uh, as, a, as an opponent of technology biotechnology really came in 2011 with a letter to, to Tom Vilsack, who is the uh, agriculture secretary of the United States government, USDA, right? I mean, a major, major player in the States. And he received a letter from Dr. Huber. And this is now a decade old. And so I really want to venture back into the where are we now file? Where do the claims that he or what were the claims that he made in that letter? And where do they stand today? And maybe we could start there. Well, it's interesting. Uh, back then, he had uh, claimed to have found a, a brand new life form pathogen that um, moved across uh, phyla, which is really interesting. Uh, you know, it was a problem in plants, and he claimed was also causing uh, disease in all the way through to humans. And I mean, that, that's a pretty big claim. Yeah, that, that's a, it's a huge claim. And that he had said that he had received word from an international or from a team that had isolated this and that they found it in crops that were specifically treated with Roundup herbicide. So this was a one of the claims in that letter to to Tom Vilsack and that the and that also the the uh, said that it caused things like Goss's wilt and uh, and a sudden uh, soybean death syndrome, which we know that Goss's wilt is caused by Clavava uh, Clavabacter species, not by Roundup. And, and, and so long story short, is he sent this like letter to a high ranking official in the United States government and said, um, we need to stop the approval of Roundup resistant alfalfa, which was currently being considered for animal feed. And, and so it's a, at the time, do you remember any of the fallout that we heard from that? Uh, it was um, quite interesting. He, he claims to have isolated this new um, organism that nobody's ever seen before. But when he was challenged by people, and particularly you did a wonderful job when you sat and listened to his presentation down in Florida, when you asked him for a sample of it, and scientists always share samples, um, that's how science works, um, and you said that you would be able to sequence it uh, very quickly with the technology of the day, which today seems very obsolete, but back then it was cutting edge, and yet his response was, no, I'm not giving you that. Uh, very strange. I mean, that's how science works, so it was... It, it was proved quite interesting that that's a, a decade ago now, and as far as I know, nobody has ever seen any sequence data about this alleged uh, multi-phylum pathogen. Yeah, yeah, and, and and we can come up to that in a minute. I was hoping we'd get to that eventually. It's, it's. Um, I, I think that just to kind of take even another step backwards, real quick, was thinking about the response at the time. And I remember that when this first came out, 
the, the internet exploded and even legitimate news outlets like CBS news, they, you know, one of their articles was, um, and this is CBS, um, that said mystery science, more details on the strange organism that could destroy Monsanto. And they frontline, they headline this thing saying that, you know, here is, um, this professor, uh, decorated uh, colonel of the U.S. Army, an expert in plant pathology who is uh, part of the response network for plant pathogens with the U.S. government, with the USDA, sending claims to the USDA that this is, um, and, he, and to quote him, uh, it, uh, using, an organ, using a compound that gives plant AIDS, okay, <laughs> um, and, and fosters the development of this pathogen, which is poisoning, like you say, plants, um, animals, which is causing abortions in animals, and then causing problems in humans. And, you know, and, and, and do you remember any of the other fallout at the time? Oh, absolutely. The, of course, this was uh, the new plague that was uh, going to um, hit the entire world because uh, even back then, uh, genetically engineered crops were widespread on a global scale. And so he was claiming that, you know, the world's population, both of people and animals, is being uh, harmed by this alleged new pathogen. And of course, as media always does, uh, that fear story ran rampant around the world, particularly on the internet. And, and you know, with very little um, critical thinking about what the claim actually was. So the fear uh, ran headlong around the world and there was, it for a time uh, had a lot of people very scared. Yeah, and, and I, that's what really bothered me about this letter is that he sends a letter to, uh, to the uh, sec agriculture secretary of the United States um, claiming that this is killing about, uh, about 450 of a thousand heifers raised on uh, on uh, feed that came from through genetic engineering were having abortions like spontaneous abortion um, where other ones didn't and he was making claims about um, uh, all kinds of claims about what was happening to animals and to people and the thing that was really disturbing about this and maybe it was okay that the agriculture secretary kind of threw it in the circular file right away i don't think there was an official government response but then the letter was leaked and the letter ended up on food democracy now on many different websites that said here is a decorated scientist who's going out and and talking about this dangerous pathogen associated with genetically engineered crops and the herbicide roundup and I, I remember at the time this is right before the um, all of the um, labeling bills were being discussed in California and in other places you know this was really setting the table for what would be a very coordinated and uh, uh, very, very powerful push to take government action in curbing the use of ingredients from genetically engineered crops based on this kind of science. You remember all that? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, um, you and I, we've been uh, in this uh, area of science for a long time, and it continues today. The, the generation of um, what some people call pseudoscience or parallel science or junk science is having has had and is having a significant impact on public policy um, and it it needs to be um, challenged in 
in order that we don't get public policy based on false information. Well, one of the big problems here is that he was going into these conversations saying that I'm an emeritus faculty member of Purdue University and associating himself with Purdue. Do you remember any of the response from Purdue University oh, at the time? Absolutely. Uh, his colleagues at Purdue produced two um, very uh, telling documents uh, from their extension program, completely um, refuting his claims about um ion uh, disease in plants and stuff and and it's very clear they looked at the science and they could not agree with him whatsoever and they publicly published these letters saying no we disagree with our uh, retired colleague yeah i actually wrote a letter to purdue university's biosafety people because you know at the universities universities anywhere you have very strict regulations on how you can handle pathogens i mean this would be like biosafety level 10 right i mean this is <laughs> an unknown um fungus like micro virus like micro fungus as he described it you know how would you contain what appeared to be what was being sold as a new kingdom of organism you know something at the edge of detection with an electron microscope that was self-replicating even though we'll see later has no genetic material and <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yes. Um, and uh, and and so here's this this um, uh, this new organism. And Purdue never got back to me. They never said anything. And I think they saw the the public relations nightmare here. That here you have a, a faculty member who's taking the show on the road and talking about uh, this organism that he's isolated. Where did he isolate it? You know, and and where was it being stored? And the CDC had no information on this. I checked with many different federal agencies and said, what is the status of this organism? And this was back at the time. And I said, you know, we don't, where is this thing? And, 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 you know, how is it being, um, how is it being protected? You know, this is, and, and as you know, essentially the response I got was crickets. And eventually they sent me to the USDA and I talked to somebody there who said, well, we're supposed to be publishing something on this sit tight, which just kind of crazy talk from a, from somebody with no evidence. And I remember back at the time, uh, you know, kind of seeing the cracks in the argument, but nobody was listening to that. Instead, he was being booked in, in venues all around the world to talk about this new pathogen. And so th this was, you know, back in the days before we were super sensitive to misinformation, disinformation, and the damage that it can do. And so when we were talking about, um, uh, uh, was there anything else back from that era that really resonates with you that you remember from when this first came out and the Purdue response or anybody else's response? Well, it was really clear that the uh, coordinated anti-GMO industry, which um, is multi-billion dollar industry around the world, they were very quick to put this front and center. And it brought in a lot of the other uh, main players, uh, main spokespeople um, from that industry all coalesced into one group and they all got behind him uh, saying that you know this is this is uh, a terrible thing that we have to ban all GM crops and and you know uh, humanity is and and all our animals are at risk from this um, technology and now here is a smoking gun and it was really quite interesting when there was no smoking gun. <laughs> Yeah, I guess maybe before we even go forward, do you have any sense as to what his motivations would be to do this? Any any idea? 
geez, you know, I still even to this day uh, have a, a hard time trying to understand why a career scientist who had a really good uh, career um, doing good quality research had made this flip to um, championing, championing um, what would be called junk science or pseudoscience and, and really pushing uh, narratives that are not supported uh, by proper uh, peer-reviewed um, science today. So I, it, he's not alone in this. There's there's quite a few of the uh, main players in, in uh, the anti-GMO industry that um, also do this. And it, it, it's, I'm sure for some it's money because they make a living, a decent living probably, um, traveling around the world speaking um, about the dangers of this technology or alleged dangers so for him himself I'm not sure what his motivation is yeah well you debated uh, Terry Varane who was uh, always held up as a Canadian uh, superstar of science and a leader in the scientific uh, brain trust of Canada who is against genetic engineering and how did how did that end up going well that was interesting yeah I've, I've gone uh, uh, head-to-head with uh, Thierry, uh, Thierry Vrain a uh, few times. And he, again, was a, he was a career scientist uh, in the Canadian agriculture uh, system. And, and then all of a sudden, one day, he switched and uh, became the darling of the anti-GMO industry. As here, he was a scientist who apparently knew the science. But then when you sit in the room with him and listen to the science or so-called science that he presents, you see that it's it's actually not science. It's some of the junk science that gets published in pay-per-view publications. And and so it was, I, I've had a, a few head-to-heads with him. Unfortunately, he's not willing to um, do any more of those, um, which, you know, I'm always willing to sit down and discuss <laughs> the science with him, but uh, he doesn't want to do that anymore. Yeah, it's getting harder and harder to find people. People always say, why don't you just debate so-and-so? And And it's like, two reasons. One is because I don't want to give legitimacy to somebody who has a a totally bogus scientific point of view. And I've debated folks like Michael Hansen before, and it's just not interesting. It's a gish gallop, you know, for those who Mm -hmm. are familiar with that term. But the other side of it is, is that it's impossible to find people willing to debate scientists. And even in uh, even in venues where I've had to where they've done the both sides kind of thing, you know, I I walk away feeling kind of scummy, you know, because there's a few folks out there who continue to push the same narrative that this is dangerous technology that must be removed. And there's nobody new. There's nobody new who's jumping on board and saying, you know, I stand against this horrible science. And it's just these folks who are kind of still making a living by draining out a few little followers and I, and you know, is that kind of accurately where we are? Absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, Don Huber is one of them. He's, uh, even just a couple months ago, he was, um, uh, plying his trade in, uh, Australia. And it's, you know, I watched, uh, some videos of him that, um, these organizations who brought him in put up and it's the same old story from 10 years ago. Now he's added a few new things that happened in the last, um, 10 years, he's added new fear stories to the the heap, but 
it's the same old shtick and he's you know it's very good at scaring people who um are not scientists and do not understand where his story falls apart i mean by just looking at some of the things he said in that video he completely contradicted himself four or five times and if you look at both of the statements or, or several of these statements as a whole you would say well this guy doesn't know what he's talking about if he's he's talking from all sides of his mouth yeah i saw him give a talk once and it was or several times actually plus the online content and he'll show slides that say look what happens to plants when you apply glyphosate and these enzymes and these genes are affected and it's like yeah of course you're spraying it with an herbicide you're going to kill it but he's done all the correlation things with autism and humans and blaming it on microcephaly uh and blaming microcephaly on um glyphosate yes and on um you know which is a horrible thing that's happening in some parts of the world and may be attributed to inappropriate use of pesticides but not necessarily glyphosate. Maybe they're spraying glyphosate there, but no one's ever made that concrete association. Um, people have made inferences based on some documents from hospitals and things, but it's never been demonstrated. And you know, even things like uh, colony collapse disorder, you know, and, and which has a very distinct meaning to beekeepers and is not what we are seeing happening with any claims in bee decline that are legit, you know, in different areas. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so it's just kind of this, uh, shotgun approach of how every problem in animal agriculture and in human health can be attributed to glyphosate. And it's yeah, there was one quote I really took, uh, quite interesting. Uh, it was a quote from one of the shows he was on. It was on food integrity now. And the quote was that these, um, glyphosate and GMOs cause virtually all other diseases so i mean <laughs> really <laughs> that's really quite interesting you know i wonder why people stopped living forever until about the 1970s <laughs> mm -hmm. it's true it's very true you know? <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's pretty interesting stuff well you know we know that there's a lot of uh, uh interesting problems that have uh, that have been claimed and, and the the big thing i really wanted to focus on is you know what is the what is the central science that he claims is the reason that glyphosate is so dangerous to, to animals well um the thing i saw recently was that it um it inhibits the c1 metabolism causing the buildup of formaldehyde and and it in this then impairs the immune system so that one thing quite interesting he said that apparently the 2015 bird flu which killed 46 million birds or at least 46 million birds um, were probably uh, euthanized and that number doesn't surprise me but then he went on to claim that not a single organic or free-range bird anywhere in the world suffered from this i'm going like hmm that's interesting. I, I seem to remember that the biggest problem it started out was with the free-range fowl in Germany. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's really uh, there's also a lot of claims about glyphosate functioning as a chelator. Oh, and yes. yeah, and that's always been the big one that it strips the minerals from from plants and animals that are necessary, 
and also disrupts gut microbiome issues in animals. And, you know, what, what are the two problems with that? Well, one is it's actually a pretty weak chelator. When you look at glyphosate compared to things like EDTA, EGTA, that chelators are, are molecules that have binding sites for divalent cations. So things like magnesium, manganese, calcium. And um, he, they, he claims this laundry list of, of, of microelements that are stripped from soil and from plant physiology and, and in gut biology. And the funny part is, is that Stephen Duke, who's a USDA scientist, did a paper, I think 2012, where he actually listed, well, let's look at the relative concentrations of those uh, cations in vivo and compare those against the, the, the amount of glyphosate that's present either being applied or what's present and is residual in, in claimed to be residually there in food and your orders of magnitude off. And, and yet here's a scientist making a claim that this is the major reason for the dysfunction. And, and this is, this is the perfect example of how you can use pseudoscience. And that's my term. I like, I prefer to scare the, the non-science uh, public because uh, they, they don't understand where this fear story falls completely apart if you look hard at the science. And if you're orders of magnitude, tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of levels different, you're not going to get the effects that he is claiming uh, from glyphosate and, and uh, divalent chelation. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty much there. So we're talking to Rob Wager. Rob is a former faculty member at Vancouver Island in, uh, University. He was a biology teacher and or a lab instructor for twenty six years. And uh, we're talking about Dr. Don Huber and his claims of glyphosate's problems, but more importantly, focusing not on him so much as much as his role in a disinformation network. How do people that are penetrating even the upper echelons of the, of the United States government with false information allowed to continue to spread it? And that's what we'll talk about today because it's pivotal in our discussions on genetic engineering and its adoption. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Happy birthday to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This podcast was spawned in 2015, right after Polka appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience. Rogan suggested that Polka would be a decent podcast host, and Viola. Here we are six years later, 290-some episodes, and approaching 1.5 million downloads. Which is what Joe Rogan gets in a single day, but hey, this is a niche audience. You see, monkeying with the threads of life to accomplish new feats in human health and food security is just the tip of the iceberg. Today's topics could not even be predicted back in 2015. The best days of biotechnology are in front of us, and the Talking Biotech Podcast will keep you at the cutting edge of innovation. Now back before episode 200, Folta contemplated putting a lid on the theories. There was pressure from his employer to stop, and a weekly podcast is a significant commitment, so between internal and external forces, the podcast seemed to be coming to an end. We decided to continue to move on towards the future, with no end in sight. But the science keeps getting better. 
point forward, we'll continue this critical conversation between experts and listeners, people like you that are willing to learn more and share the beautiful stories of scientific innovation with others. We thank you for your loyalty and continued support. Now forward into year seven. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Rob Wager. Rob is a former faculty member, now retired. You having fun? Oh, I'm having a blast. (laughs) That's really good to hear. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I never thought I would want to be retired. And just the events of the last couple of years, some spurred on by folks like Huber, have really changed my opinion on, on how much I feel like uh, standing up for the academy um, when the academy kind of sticks a knife in your back, you know, it, um, for telling the truth. And we can talk about that next week on episode 300. Um, actually, I should mention episode 300 will be Allie Kennedy, who is one of my former students, who is going to interview me about the New York Times situation and some of the other uh, things that happened, uh, what we learned in court discovery, all kinds of good, fun stuff. So that'll be episode 300. But to episode 299, uh, we talked about the letter to Vilsack, the claims that were being made. And it would be fun to kind of revisit, um, you know, the story here in Gainesville, Florida. And I don't know if you remember what happened here. or Maybe you could tell your account and then I could fill in any of the spots. But do you remember what that whole thing was about? Uh, he came to your university, I believe. And- well, well, to town. He came, he came to, um, to the city of Gainesville and gave a talk at something called the Civil Media, Civic Media Center, which is uh, a, a neat little bookstore of, uh, you know, of uh, alternative press. So let's just put it that way. But uh, let's start there. So tell me all about what happened when he came here. Well, <clears throat> he, he, excuse me, he had his usual um, lineup of, of fear stories about the evils of genetically engineered crops and in particular glyphosate and front and center of his story the central theme was this unknown uh, virus fungus organism that was causing that he himself had had uh, isolated and it was going to cause massive disease everywhere and so he for a while he had the audience completely captivated i mean it's if if true that's an amazing story to be told um but fortunately uh you were there to ask him some very uh pertinent questions to what he had just presented and i think i'll let you tell uh the audience uh how that went because um that you know whenever i go to uh, a presentation by somebody who's presenting um, stories that allege issues with gene crops. I like to ask questions as well. And it's very telling when you get uh, certain types of responses back. So please tell. Yeah, okay, well, let me go back into that. So, you know, the, the thing was is that, well, let me just start at the beginning. He was coming to Gainesville, and I got wind of this, and he was being sponsored by uh, Florida A&M University. And I had sent a letter to the person who was you know, bringing him in. And I said, you realize that this guy, and this is in November of 2013. So this is two years after the letter to Vilsack and two years of extraordinary claims without a shred of evidence. And I uh, sent a letter to her and I said, you know, you realize this is kind of, you know, iffy here. And the letter I wrote was pretty fair. 
Um, it, it did. It was not inflammatory. Uh, it, I basically said that it, it was being sponsored by Florida A and M University and the Florida Organic Growers. And Florida Organic Growers, great group. They do wonderful work here in the state. They're uh, very uh, committed to community food, and I I can't say a, a bad thing about them. Um, and they they were uh, very good in most in the things they do. They're very good. And they were sponsoring Huber. So I was kind of like a little upset because here's an organization that I appreciate and the folks inside who were in the right doing good work. And uh, Huber was going to, you know, latch onto their credibility. And I, and I felt that was really bad for them. And I sent them a note to that effect as well. But Huber came, he gave his talk. Uh, he was introduced as Professor Emeritus, Purdue University, all the bells and whistles, all the authority. And um, he gave his talk. And we were not allowed to ask questions during the talk. Save them for the end. And I went with a friend of mine uh, who was another faculty member who works in organic production. And she was sitting next to me. And she kept, like, kind of elbowing me through the whole talk. Like, oh, my God. You know, like, you know, this is actually being said. Um, it was being recorded on video. I asked for the copy of the video and never could get it. Uh, I did record the audio, which it turns out was a good move. So he gives his entire talk. And then at the end, um, Marty Mesh from Florida Organic Growers, who I like Marty, good guy. He comes up on the stage and says, any questions? And, you know, Dr. Fulta, you know, I see you over there stewing and I know you got a million questions here, but can we just have one? And I said, I don't have a question. I'd like to make an offer. We've heard about the danger. We've heard about the threats to crops, to animals, to people, this atrocity that's being foisted upon us by the Monsanto company. And I would like to extend an opportunity to Dr. Huber to solve this problem. And let's take this microorganism that you have isolated and let's do the DNA sequencing. And I would volunteer to do that and give you all the credit. What do you say? And all the heads turn from me to him like a tennis game, you know. <laughs> the ball is now in your court. <laughs> and he was locked up like a deer in the headlights. He had nothing to say. He hemmed and hawed for a few seconds and then spent probably the next five minutes explaining why you couldn't do DNA, why you couldn't sequence its genome. Uh, the answers ranged from it was um, not his call, that it was with a group in China where he had shared it, and that the Chinese had this, which seems like a maybe a minor security risk. Um, he also says that it has no genetic material, has no DNA. So it, no DNA, no RNA. It's a self-replicating um, microfungus, prion-like microfungus. That, so now the goalpost is moving. And he was so locked up and it was so funny was he kept turning down like, oh, well, I wouldn't send it. I can't send it. And people in the audience were getting a little upset. They were like, hey, why don't you send it? You know, come on, let's do it. You know, and um, and and it, it, it was so telling that I probably did sway a room. To, to just kind of shed a little light on the BS, which is so important because one part about this is that during that presentation, he was showing pictures of, you know, boarded cattle. And mm -hmm. he had this room of people who were audibly gasping. You know, people were shaking their heads. How could this be allowed to happen? You know, they were buying into his rhetoric. 
and they were frozen. And so to kind of, you know, really gently underbus him was, was really turns out to be a good thing in the end. Yeah, it, uh, it's interesting. Um, I suspect we'll talk a little bit about um, my direct head-to-head with him in, in Africa in 2019. And the same sort of thing when I asked a particular question. In that case, it was about his Purdue colleagues, how they refuted his information. He had nothing, and it was a deer in the headlights. And then he, strangely enough, began a five-minute rant about some scientist called Kevin Folta. <laughs> and and I, I, who brought him up? Where's this from? <laughs> and, and so the people in, who were sitting in this audience in Africa started to look, well, he just spent an hour and a half scaring them about every possible disease in the world being caused by glyphosate. Um, strangely enough, he had no mention about this apparent uh, new organism. And I've never heard him mention anything about it since uh, those days when he was called to either put up or... Um, and so it's the same system where when challenged by somebody who knows uh, about the science, it uh, quickly deteriorates into personal attacks. In this case, it was an attack against you for some reason. Well, it goes much deeper than anybody knows because I, I don't talk about or I haven't talked about what happened to me after this. And I, I still, you know, I, I guess maybe I will. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's one of these things that I was handed a letter confidentially um, from someone in the university who said, you really need to know about this. And he sent a letter to the leadership at the university and said that I was uh, engaged in ethics concerns and unprofessional activity. And that by me requesting or sending a note to the to Florida A&M and others saying, hey, you know, this guy has got some issues. Um, he found that objectionable. But during the entire during the discussion, you know, during his his art, his letter, which maybe I could post, um, it says that uh, that I need uh, anger management um, uh, training or whatever counseling, and that uh, and that I was you know and that other things he's going through my websites and said that I was journal shopping because he read something I wrote about how I had a really good manuscript that had been rejected from four journals, and that he says that this is you know a reflection of you know of my unprofessional uh or my lack of scientific ability and uh, you know i doesn't realize that i started with science and nature you know and worked my way down um <laughs> you know which which is true about 80 about 90 percent of papers that are submitted there anyway um uh he uh mentions in the end that that i was uh, disruptive during his talk that I was, um, unprofessional. I, uh, name calling abusive language. Um, let me see what else it was here that he mentioned. He mentioned all this stuff that I was horrible during that talk. And the funny part was, is that I was extremely polite and it was all recorded by me. So my, um, leadership, when they get a complaint, they take it very seriously and as maybe they should. But 
uh, you know, to, to hear my side of the story and still be skeptical. And then, ha- you know, having me play, you know, here, here's the, here's the recording if you want to hear it. And then all of a sudden it became clear as to what was happening. That here was a emeritus professor at a land grant university, someone who's associated with the United States government, not only harassing v- Vilsack, but now also lying to a university administration to, to try to cause action against a faculty member. This guy's got a real problem here. And then to make matters worse, when he, well, we can, I guess I'll throw it in here. When he gave talks at the, he gave a talk at the 2016 um, plant animal genome meeting in San Diego, and he gave it his usual shtick. He got invited in kind of a crank session called One Health uh, something where it was all about poison shrimp and glyphosate. And he put up a, a, a slide in his slide deck of me in a jester hat. So at the plant animal genome meeting where I've been, I've been in leadership there. I've organized sessions. I know everybody there. He puts up the slide and it just shows this like weird kind of personal, uh, gross thing that he does. That's not the meaning. That's not the reason why I'm doing this in a retaliatory way whatsoever. It's simply exposing the fact that disinformation has been propagated by emeritus faculty members of land grant institutions and that they've taken personal shots at the scientists who call them out on disinformation. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, uh, Some of the very same activities I witnessed firsthand uh, by a group of um, stars in the anti-GMO industry when they were all presenting at uh, a conference in Nairobi in 2019. It was um, interesting to see how when the science was challenged, the return uh, rebuttal was always of a personal nature. Yeah, but that's how but that's how it always goes right yeah. you can't discuss the science so go after the person and disqualify the person with allegations that aren't even true and that's something we've been seeing for years because they got nothing else um here's a um just to kind of let me just follow up i found something in the letter here i've been kind of looking at it it says uh, counseling and anger management ethical behavior professional conduct courtesy and respect would certainly appear to be in order and, you know, what's really funny is, is that at the end of that talk, after the end of that session, the question and answer session, uh, he was being walked out by his handlers. And I went up to him and I held out my hand to shake his hand. And he extended his limp little hand, like, you know, like totally reluctantly. And I said, Dr. Huber, I am no malice intended whatsoever. I am here to help. And if this is a real problem, let's blow the lid off it. And I was very kind to him and never once showed an ounce of animosity or anger. The thing that I, that I, that gets me upset is the fact that, that he could go after me after that. And that it's allowed to continue, you know, that not only is it unprofessional behavior on his part, it's also the fact that, you know, when it goes to my administration, you know, this should be something of, of stronger condemnation and, Instead, he gets recruited into more venues. So you mentioned Nairobi, but what are some of the other places where he's been giving presentations about uh, the dangers of glyphosate and genetic engineer crops? Well, he's he's been pretty active lately. I see he's been uh, he's been on uh, 
Dr. Mercola, um, who everybody is familiar with, he's been done two episodes with him. He's and and lately he's been uh, traveling to Australia and New Zealand and talking with the Australia Raw Milk Organization. And uh, the latest conference where he gave about an hour long talk was in a small town called Toowoomba, uh, which is east of uh, Brisbane in in uh, Australia, and. Again, the the presentation goes with lots of alleged issues and scare stories and pictures and, and stuff, and then it just cuts off. So I, I don't know if anybody was there to ask questions at the end of it because uh, the video just ends at one point. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, videos online. He was a, a heavy hitter in Hawaii when they were trying to get the labeling issue and the ban on the islands in Hawaii. Uh, he was brought over there by uh, by anti-GMO uh, organizations. Uh, he's been tra traveling quite a bit. He did talks in Colorado. Um, I was going to sponsor a talk across the street um, where it was going to be a science kegger. <laughs> Uh, it ended up not happening, but it was one of these things where people were so there, they really put a lot of credibility into him. And that's why it's so disturbing to me. If, if he was another schmuck, like some of these folks, it would be one thing, but he continues to leverage the, uh, the credibility of his former organization and make claims that are and not exactly connected best to the science. So what about, what about what happened in Nairobi? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, he was part of the, the A team imports. There was uh, Sarah Lini, there was Judy Carmen, there was Tyrone Hayes, and there was Don Huber. I mean, if you look up the, the heavy hitters in the anti-GMO industry, those have to be four of the top five. I mean, I suppose you could add Jeffrey Smith and, and, uh, maybe the food babe as well. Um, but uh, and so they all were presenting uh, very uh, provocative uh, statements and alleged science that supported the idea that they should ban all synthetic pesticides from Africa uh, and, and move towards agroecology. It's interesting how the word agroecology has disappeared from their advertising for that very conference. Now, now it's all, all about uh, transforming uh, African agriculture. Um, but it during the time, I mean, it, these people, they had the audience absolutely aghast. As you say, that if these stories that they were presenting were real, then Africa was in danger from uh, the evils of of. GM crops, and in particularly this one compound, uh, glyphosate, which would affect, according to one of these uh, four uh, speakers, your children's children will be affected by this. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty powerful things uh, to, to make statements like that. And, and yet that's what exactly uh, these people did. Um, and they, they had the audience pretty scared. Uh, I was there because I was aware of all these uh, alleged issues and I had looked at the science that refuted these issues and I took that science with me. So it was when uh, people in Africa got to see both the presentations and then the science that refuted those presentations, it sort of took the wind out of their sails there and fortunately uh, in uh, Kenya they continued to move forward and today um, 
BT cotton is now commercialized and they're moving ahead with uh, BT cowpea as well, which is wonderful technology that will greatly help uh, the small scale farmers in that part of the world and any part of the world for that matter. Yeah. And, and uh, also um, cassava is, ah, is now yes. been approved and yes. that's really exciting. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks on the podcast uh, with some scientists from, uh, from Kenya. But I, I guess the, the, what is it to gain at this point? Is it really just, uh, you know, a, and maybe that's something I didn't mention earlier is I did speak with somebody and I know this is not the way evidence-based podcasts work, but I spoke to somebody at a conference, I, you know, who, we, who kind of patted me on the shoulder and said, I see you locked up with, with, with Don. And I said, well, no, nah, you know, whatever. And um, they told me that the whole thing is based on, I guess he had some sort of lawsuit with Monsanto back in the early 2000s somewhere that became settled and there was a gag order placed on him saying anything about it. And that when that gag order expired is when this letter went to Vilsack. And so I, you know, again, an unsubstantiated, you know, anecdote from somebody who I do trust, but um, you know, it's nothing that we can, but, but that seems like, you know, a rationale for why he would do this. Um, why do people keep continuing? What's in it for them? And I, I know we talked a little bit about this before, but you know, how do you, why do you think that he, is it just a craving for the limelight or is it a vendetta well, against the companies or against scientists or what's going on? Well, it's, it, it, it's very uh, profitable for people like him and for the support, uh, supporters or the sponsors of, of these type of talks. There is a large percentage, uh, a market share of food where people have real concerns about their food system and unfortunately not having a good background in how the food system actually works from farm to fork, they get led astray into uh, marketing campaigns that are designed to steer them towards a particular segment of the market. And we're, we're talking billions and billions of dollars are at stake here. So using fear to motivate the public to move towards your particular product is has a long history. And unfortunately, it continues today. Uh, as for the, the um, speakers like uh, Dr. Huber and such, um, they probably make a pretty decent living traveling around the world um, telling these uh, stories that allege to expose uh, the dangers of uh, biotechnology. Yeah, tickets for these events. I mean, there's uh, some of these are, you know, $30, $37 per ticket to be able to go get misinformation. One good example, there was the Cornerstone Health Summit in 2017, a $37 ticket that, you know, quote from him says, medical data, medical data indicates 93% of women tested had GMO BT toxin in their blood and 70% passed this toxic pesticide to their developing child in the womb. Oh, the, the person then in effect becomes their own pesticide factory. Yeah, this is that's, what he says. That was that um, debunked paper out of uh, Quebec, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I well, remember that paper where they, they used a, a, a system to detect the protein uh, that is useful in plants, but they tested blood 
<laughs> so you're using a completely different system that doesn't work in blood to look for something that's found in plants. And, you know, the paper quickly became known as uh, more junk science, but it certainly gets paraded around the internet as proof of uh, the dangers of um, GM crops. Uh, he, he's making some amazing claims about BT uh, and that apparently we know nothing about. And yet, if you go to the UN consensus document on insects ex or plants uh, expressing insecticidal proteins, there are thousands of documents showing the safety of this particular technology. So, you know, he claims we know nothing about it and it's a danger when in fact we know a great deal about it and it's not a danger. No, and organic farmers use it all the time. I know uh, I know. in our space, we go through a lot of BT. We go through a lot of Dipel, uh, especially on cruciferous crops. It works great on cabbage loopers and other uh, issues we have here, you know, pickle worms, things like that. And don't, don't underbust the limited tools that the organic industry has. You know, that's the other big gripe. Um, but, but this was the kind of claims that were made. And, you know, I'll take everything that um, I've talked about and post this in the uh, show notes on the episode uh, today. It's really important because I want you to see, you know, what the realities are of this of this entire thing. Um, so, you know, where where does where does this go next? And and right now, you know, what what are his major claims now in the places where he's giving talks? Uh, unfortunately, I mean, he's using the same scare stories, uh, but he's just been. Uh published uh, as editor or co-editor of Synthetic Pesticide Use in Africa, a book um, published by the World Food Preservation Center, LLC. Uh, these were one of the co-sponsors of that conference in uh, Nairobi in 2019. But it's, it, again, it's designed to push a particular method of agriculture which does not include synthetic pesticides and does not include biotechnology uh, into the developing world and unfortunately this could have huge negative ramifications for the population in Africa which looks to grow by 500 million people by the turn of the century. What we need in Africa is the best of every agricultural system, not limiting some systems because of ideological uh, biases. And so it, it, it can have, if, if people um, associated with him are successful, Africa is going to be in a very dire situation where they will not be able to produce anywhere close to the amount of food they need for their populations. Yeah, and I think we see some effects of that in two different ways. One, one is um, when last year when there was huge outbreaks of locusts in the Horn of Africa, so in uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, in that area, Kenya, there were huge swarms of locusts that they didn't have the resources to control because they were talked out of using certain insecticides by folks like Greenpeace. And then, you know, and, and swarms of locusts could, could consume some like massive farms taking farmers from their livelihood, but also removing food that was intended to feed millions of people. And eventually they did use the appropriate insecticides to control them, and that's great. But that's one example of how the misinformation can go to, to exacerbate a problem. Um, people were in the fields waving shirts, screaming. They got whistles. I mean, this is what they were resorting to because they had no pest controls. 
The other problem is, is that they, well, there's two other issues. One is they resort to much more toxic alternatives than the good things that we can use because they can get it. The other problem is, is that a lot of, a lot of them go to compounds that are not approved. And if you go throughout Africa, you find people using glyphosate in places on GE crops where they're not approved for use. And it's because it works. And same thing in India. You can't stop people from using technology to support their livelihoods because their families come first. And if they have technology that's going to work and it's going to be safe, they use it. So these are, this is the spectrum of this kind of issue. Yeah, we've seen that, that, that um, adoption um, clandestine or illegal uh, by the letter of the law around the world where uh, farmers have seen technology, these technologies working with their neighbors across the border. And although their own governments are not permitting them to use that same safe, safe technology, the seeds have a tendency to move. Uh, borders are not solid structures. They're, they're um, put in place and held in place by laws. Um, so where this technology is being adopted, often in neighboring countries, and, and you see this around the world, um, the farmers see that their neighbors are getting good results, good safe results with this technology. They want it too. Uh, unfortunately, politics and the politics of fear um, is very uh, widespread. And, and that's one of the dangers of this, these misinformation campaigns is they are successful at getting decision makers and policy makers to put inhibitory policies in place to stop this technology from helping the very farmers they apparently uh, represent. So that said, you know, you, how do you feel that voices like his are being treated by the media and maybe by populations in general? Do they still have weight? Um, I think their, their uh, heyday, the day when they curried the favor of all mainstream media. And it didn't matter uh, what they said. It was blasted out there for the world to see. Those days are, are rapidly coming to a close. The media has started to realize that uh, the Peter and the Wolf, these people have been claiming uh, all kinds of evils for 20 plus years, and yet there is no evidence to support them. And so we're seeing countries around the world uh, producing their own genetically engineered crops for their own crops for their own problems. And those are now starting to come onto the market, particularly in the developing world. And that's a very good thing to see. Well, that's a really excellent point to end on. You know, so Rob, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was my pleasure. As always, it's great to speak with you. And I can't wait to see you in person again. That was a lot of fun when I was up there before, and we'll do that again. That sounds great. Yeah. You're always welcome up here. It's a nice place to live. <laughs> well, and, uh, and, and anyone, you know, you're always welcome on the Talking Biotech podcast. So let's talk about this real quick. I would like to go back and revisit the story of the Seralini rats, the formaldehyde in soybeans by Shiva Avadori, by um, Stephanie Seneff's claims of most kids having autism in a couple of years. Um, all these claims have been put out there to scare people, and the folks who make them are held unaccountable. Could we go back in time and look at these one by one? So I, if you're interested, you know, if you're interested or anybody else is interested in hosting one of those podcasts, uh, would you be interested in joining me for those? I would be very happy to join you with those. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's time that some accountability for some of these um, 
really outlandish uh, fear stories, it's time that they be called to account. Yeah, even that uh, uh, cow's stomach or pig stomach one is <laughs> from 2013 now. Yes. And, 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 and the Seralini rats was first 12, 20. It's almost 10 years. And no other data have come out to support those claims, just like the micro-mysterious fungus organism. And, and damn it, can we just kind of put a lid on the bullshit? And it- let's... Uh, anyway, <laughs> it would be nice. It would be nice. And uh, I, I love to take part in uh, your efforts to bring uh, some accountability to these fear stories and, and some realism to what actually we know about those things, you know, 10 years down the road. There you go. So, okay, I'll repeat one thing really quickly is that this is not some kind of weird personal attack. This is just us having appropriate scientific criticism of claims that are made that are not consistent with the science. So don't frame it that way. And by all means, do not write more emails or complaints to the university that I work at. This podcast is done independently of the university. It's my personal opinion, and it it does not reflect the views of the University of Florida. It's faculty, staff, or students. This is my views as an independent scientist analyzing the claims made by a scientist. And this is what we all need to do. We need to step into these discussions and have them fairly and honestly provide the evidence and have the conversation because there's a lot on the line here. It's about getting technology to people that need it. So sorry to get a little salty. (laughs) That's all right. You know, it's we've got a big issue where we have to produce 70% more food than we do today on the same or less land more sustainably. How are we going to do that? We have to use the best of every technology, including the best of biotechnology. You got it. And, and, you know, and those of us who know about it need to continue to keep talking about it, no matter how much we're told to shut up. And it, it, because you know what, the people who are out there spreading the misinformation, it ain't happening to them. And so we, and so we all need to be coming together and, and sharing these stories to influence the folks who still are trying to figure out who to trust. You know, we basically showed that a claim that went to the United States government, the upper echelons of the agriculture uh, of the USDA or agricultural enterprise in this nation, that those claims were bogus and they've been dropped. And that fear campaign has been dropped because somebody held them accountable and has now paid a price for that. You know, um, so time will be kind. But, you know, long story short. Get out there and talk about it. Share this podcast. Share these stories. And let's together see if we can make the change that we need to do it. Because a lot of people need the technology. And let's not let this kind of noise get in the way. All right. So I'll stop there. (laughs) Thanks again, Rob. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Always great to talk with you. Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech's talking biotech rant fest and soapbox um you know i'm yeah I, I don't normally like to do this but it's one of these things where um you know we'll talk about it next week on episode 300 um i'm enduring a new level of suffering professionally because of telling the truth about science and yeah. it's really unfortunate that it has to go that way so we'll talk about that next week and uh, thank you for listening write reviews um, you can bleep out the bad word if you want to play it for your kids. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate you extremely much. And we'll talk to you again next week. 
The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.